This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I want to welcome our audience on Bloomberg Television and radio now. IBM CEO and Chair Ginny Rometty joining us live from CES in Las Vegas. Ginny, thanks so much for being here. You just got off stage. You're talking about what is next for you in data, AI, quantum computing. Uh, and you were on stage just now with the CEO of Delta. Uh, talk to me about how, as a flyer, we will see your technology transforming Delta's business. Yeah, thanks. And and thanks for having me on. We just had a great conversation with Ed Bastian at Delta, and we've done a lot of work together. And it really boils down to all the different ways you could make the flyer experience better. So it's everything from recognizing who you are and your history without you saying anything. So if uh, your flight is canceled, uh, all the work we've done to build a really strong data lake and all the AI to then say, not only here's the flight you should take, but even to predict what is the right kind of compensation for the right kind of situation. And then at the other end of the spectrum, it's maintenance. And then the other side of it, we had a big announcement today on weather. As you know, we own the weather company. And this was a huge announcement about the most accurate local weather. And we'll be able to predict turbulence an hour in advance. So think about that, too, both not from a safety, but as well, if I'm a pilot, fuel, and being able to have a flight path that instead of the flight uh, you know, captain coming on saying, let me look for some smooth air, uh, that's known well in advance. So we We covered everything from impact to weather, which, by the way, impacts, uh, it's the number one factor on all industry, uh, weather to customer service to maintenance and operations. Now, when it comes to AI, on the one hand, there's concern from people like Elon Musk about an AI apocalypse, about AI threatening humans. And then on the flip side, there's some who say that AI isn't living up to the hype, isn't living up to expectations. Which is it? Yeah, I don't think it's either of those, to be honest with you. Um, I got a chance on stage to cover and really sort of give people a way to look at AI in a broad spectrum. If on one hand, what people talk about when AI is like a human brain, general AI, that's decades away, if at all. On the other end, some of the AI we have today is very what we call narrow AI. It does one simple thing, does it great, but that's all it does. And so is that an issue of expectations or that's just what that does? What we introduced today is to get the world thinking, the next level is something called broad AI, where think of it as this. It's the same. One domain, one task is narrow. Broad says, hey, I'm in a domain, but I can learn something next to me. So if I'm an insurance company, uh, right now, I train my claims on all the roof types of the world. I have to do a lot of training on that. Broad AI says, okay, I've been trained on roofs. If one is hit with hail, I can recognize that across all the rest of them without more training. This, to me, is what helps then bring the promise of AI alive. Way less training and the time to value for a business. Because today, when you do hear people talk about, am I getting value yet, such a huge amount goes into training and collecting data. So, so much of what we're doing is trying to narrow that down so you get that value faster. Now, as you mentioned, you unveiled a new high-precision, hyper-local weather forecasting system, the next step in your acquisition of the Weather Channel. You've unveiled a new design for your quantum computers. All of these things sound cool, but how do they add to IBM's bottom line? 
Yes. So look, um, the discussion about weather, as you know, we are the weather app on your phones. Almost every phone around, when you hit weather, that's us. Um, that's a very good business as well. And when we talk about AI for clients, data, you have to prepare the data. That's a very good business. All the data, the analytics, and then the AI on top of it. And quantum, I think what you're asking is, what's the time frame till quantum really produces commercial results? And we're probably in a two to five year time frame that you'll actually start to see commercial businesses doing real commercial applications, and then that means revenue. So how many quantum computers do you expect to sell in, say, the next two years? Yeah, that's, that is a very good question because don't think of them that way. These quantum systems are a capability you offer on the cloud. And so it's really about, today, 7 million experiments have already been done. It's worth noting, because what quantum does, it doesn't replace other kinds of computing. The reason it's on a cloud, by the way, is it off it operates at something colder than outer space. And so we'll offer it via the cloud. Today, 7 million experiments, over 100,000 different people preparing. And what we introduce today when we say it's a system is that, yes, real humans can operate, manage, write programs to it. There's languages that are out on open source. You know, we've been going through a phase to prepare everyone for this. And then ExxonMobil joined us and talked about the work they're already starting about how to more effectively uh, think of it as create different kinds of fuel, different kind of chemicals because what quantum's going to get at for business is anything you do today that's approximated, and I don't think people realize how much things like drug discovery, that's why there's wet labs. You can't literally model, model these things yet, and that's what we'll get to. So when you say how many will you sell, it's really about usage because it's offered over the cloud, and that's how it will be. And as I said already, 7 million experiments. Uh, there's a network formed. By the way, people are beginning to pay for that. And then right. the real issue is in the usage and what you get then. Now, I, I want to remind our, our, our viewers on Bloomberg Radio, we're speaking with Ginny Rometty, CEO of IBM. Trade talks, Ginny, are ongoing, and we are starting to see some real impacts on U.S. businesses. Even Apple bl blaming you know, poor iPhone sales in China in part on trade tensions. IBM doesn't manufacture in China, but how is the broader macroeconomic downturn and the trade war impacting IBM? Yes. So, so just, to, I mean, kind of a big picture on trade. I mean, I've spent a lot of time, and we all really do believe the trade ought to be fair trade, responsible trade, uh, in what's out there. And so uh, we would always prefer people to engage in a dialogue and resolve these issues because trade is good for all of us. Um, and, in fact, it creates jobs. I think history shows it creates jobs for all of us. And so what I've seen here, I have actually begun to see a difference in how clients are looking at what they want to accomplish with technology. So if I looked over a long arc of time, Emily, you'd see a lot of focus on just innovation. Uh, I do see a much more balanced requirement from clients now on both innovation and productivity. And I think that's in response to an uncertain environment. So you were on the Stra President's Strategy and Business Council. That council disbanded, but at the time you said you wanted to continue to engage with the government on important issues like taxes, like immigration. On the day the President is scheduled to give a primetime address at the border, have you found engaging with the administration to be productive? 
Yeah, look, I've, um, I've always believed in no matter what government, including our own, it's about engagement on policies. And we've had really productive engagement on things like skills and education and really have accomplished some great things, uh, something called the Perkins Act. And this is all about creating a society where you really value skills, not just diplomas. And that requires a lot of policy change because if you kind of roll back to your initial questions to me on technology, the number one issue for, I believe, our society right now is skills. And it's retraining and then people coming out with fresh skills, having them be right. It's why there's 7 million open jobs, 6 million people looking, but not a match in skills. And so we have found, a, I think, a very receptive audience in trying to advance things like apprenticeships, the policy things all around education, so that to put focus on how do you get an environment where people can participate in new tech and that it does not always require a four-year college degree. And so I talked a bit about this, uh, more than a bit about this, at CES, and in fact introduced a lot of IBMers. We call them new collars, not blue collar, not white collar, non-traditional, a firefighter, someone who was a barista, someone who was a six-year high school. We've got 200 of these going on. Um, and so that's an example of an area that I have found this to be a very productive discussion. Now, there's been a lot of volatility in big tech, hundreds of billions of dollars wiped off the market caps of Apple, of Facebook, even IBM has been hit. What is your outlook for market sentiment, investor sentiment around big tech in 2019? Yes. Well, I'll certainly let you work on the market sentiment piece. Um, I will really kind of circle back to my point on, though, what I see clients wanting and therefore what does the big tech, what are they looking for people to do? And I look to a year ahead of us that I think we are going to see clients, when they deploy their tech dollars, they're going to want solutions that bring them both productivity and bring them innovation. And this is one of the best, that's one of the best things I think IBM does is allow and work on both sides of that equation. All right, IBM CEO Ginny Rometty joining us from CES. Thanks so much, Ginny, uh, for stopping by. Back to you in the studio. Thank you so much. That's Emily Chang speaking with Chair President and CEO of IBM, Jenny Rometty. Jenny, they're live in Las Vegas. Emily in our San Francisco studio. So Anurag Rana has made our way into the studio. He was listening uh, to what uh, Jenny Rometty had to say he is BI software and IT services analyst. So where is IBM uh, at this moment? We heard a lot of talk about AI. We heard to talk about weather. We heard to talk about uh, airlines. How do you frame IBM at this moment? See, for IBM, um, it's going to be the Red Hat acquisition that really gives them a boost, but that won't be till 2020, frankly, because the deal's not going to close till the, you know, the end of this year. But, you know, Without Red Hat, they're still going to show, they're still going to struggle to grow this year. Um, they've, you know, the, the cognitive solutions division is, uh, wasn't growing last quarter. The systems division is very tough comparison. The outsourcing business is under pressure. So with, you know, but we think with Red Hat deal, they can come back and, you know, show some growth uh, next year. What does IBM need to be? I mean, I, you know, I could have said that they could have uh, done this Red Hat deal a few years ago that might have helped. Um, you know, IBM still owns a lot of legacy businesses, which is under decline, which has a lot of pressure on pricing. There is some margin is, pressure What are on the that. legacy businesses that, are, are, that just don't work anymore? So data center outsourcing, for example, is one of them. Okay. So you have a lot of companies, they used to run data centers for uh, enterprises. Now they are shutting those data centers down, moving into co-location facilities, moving more stuff 
stuff to the cloud. So, you know, that business has been under pressure for several years. Then you have some of the older application software development uh, work. You know, people used to deploy old SAP software, old Oracle software. I'm talking about the on-premise stuff. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, going south, but you have, you know, Salesforce deployments and Workday deployments, that's on the way up. So th there is still a lot of that old stuff lying around there that is masking some of the decent growth in the newer stuff. There has been so much excitement about IBM Watson, and I believe that's uh, when you say cognitive solutions, yeah. that's that business. Do we have a good handle? Like I look at the Bloomberg, and when we do the revenue breakdown, they say it's about a $35 billion revenue business for 2017. Is, is that, it? That's not Watson. That, that, there is a lot of software in it. There is okay. other things as well they, in it. Because it seems like anytime you have a conversation with Ginny is – she focuses on that. And I understand it. It's easy to get excited about it, but I do wonder about what the payoff is ultimately. They have not disclosed the actual uh, revenue that they generate from IBM Watson. But, you know, one of the things they talk about it, IBM Watson makes its way across all their product lines, all their businesses. It helps in the consulting part of it. It helps to, you know, for them to Does create it? custom solutions. Well, there is certain parts of it. But once again, since we don't have a good dollar number, it's very difficult to quantify what that it is. And it's certainly not $33 billion, you know, for sure. Hey, Shortly before you came into the studio, we were having uh, a conversation with an investor who was talking about spam stocks versus FANG stocks, and you know, talking about Salesforce, PayPal, uh, and others. Where does IBM sort of fit into the current pantheon of big tech? So IBM has been in a very good crossroad for a while, and I think that's what I said. The Red Hat acquisition would have helped yeah. them a few years ago. IBM has always had a good history of you know very large clients, very old clients, but those clients move, need to move a lot of their stuff to the cloud. They really needed a good portfolio of you know, public cloud services, as well as some hybrid cloud services, which I think the, the Red Hat acquisition can give them. All right. Because it's interesting. I was looking at kind of just revenue. I mean, revenue growth or lack thereof, right? We don't see much. I mean, 2017, it was down 1% year over year. Uh, 2018, it looks like 2.6% growth. We're not looking for a lot in 2018. And we're looking for negative in 2019. There was, uh, there was some uh, help from a currency in that uh, 2.6, which you mentioned. It has been flat to, you know, plus or minus 1% on a constant currency basis. Um, you know, that might be the same thing in 2019 as well. It's interesting. We were talking about Sears and we talk about, you know, where does Sears fit in the retail space at this point? Do we need it? Do we still need an IBM? Is there a future IBM that makes sense in where kind of technology is going? They have a lot of very, as I said, large clients, old clients, a number of clients, and they have annuity businesses, contracts signed up for many years. So you just can't discard that. But at the same time, they really need a lot more newer products to sell in the market yeah. that can offset some other pressure on the legacy stuff. Just want to point out, IBM is just up about 1.5%. It's down 22% since early October, but it has rallied, Jason, about 11.5% since that Christmas Eve sell-off. Anurag Rana is BI Software and IT Services Analyst. BI, of course, Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house research shop. Thank you so much, as always, for your insights. Yeah, some might say he's the investor with nine lives and the company with nine lives. We're talking about Sears and Eddie Lampert getting another chance to save the Sears bid. Lauren Coleman-Lochner has been nonstop Sears since Friday night, along with her colleagues. Uh, and then, of course, for years before that, because Sears is the story that just keeps on giving. Also nonstop has been our Eliza Ronalds-Hannon. She is high-yield and distressed credit reporter. Lauren is consumer and retail reporter, both at Bloomberg News and both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Lauren's so excited to be here. <laughs> 
re- cheering. So much Can I just say, I ran into the two of them on our way out last night. Lauren's like, I've been working on this story since Friday night. And then, of course, for years before we, that. We, we uh-huh. yes. You guys both we have been. A, yes, 11.30 p.m. to be exact for the <laughs> latest. There was no version. weekend for these women. Um, so where shall we start? Liquidation, is it not happening? Not as of now. Everything's on pause. Um, the various stakeholders here, they gathered in court today, tried to hash things out. Um, the judge was really pushing everyone to try one last time to come up with a route that would actually allow Sears's 50,000 or more employees to, to remain in jobs, or at least some of them. So the judge really wanted the company to find a way to make this rescue bid work. And is it because of those workers? I mean, if it was 5,000 workers or 10,000 workers, would we be having this discussion? No. It's a huge consideration. And and we've seen politicians and others, pension funds, stepping up after we saw the demise of Toys R Us last year. That was 30-plus thousand people. We're starting to see this concern surface in a much bigger way. Why? Why is I mean, I think it's a good thing because I think – but why all of a sudden? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I well, think you have yeah. people like Elizabeth Warren. Okay. We have an election coming so politics. up. politics. Yeah, not to say that this is not sincere. It certainly is. But we, you know, and these groups are getting organized, too. These retailers are organizing, and the representatives have been really effective in bringing these issues to the attention of people like pension fund managers. Right. And It's also just such a big company. Anytime that there's a company retailer this big with this many employees you do see the judge really speak up and try to make an effort and yeah. so what uh, eliza what does the market make uh, of this how do investors look at it what's the lens through which they're seeing this the market has considered sears to be pretty much a slow liquidation for the past probably 10 years almost yes, or, i think that's so accurate. there's no one who's making new investments in sears except maybe on the default uh, on the derivative side in order to try to juice some returns based on kind of gaming out the um, the final few months, but no one. The only investors that are long Sears that are that remain are the ones who have been there in there too long to yeah. get out. And, and what does this tell us about sort of the the state of the broader consumer retail market? Because it does feel like we're at this interesting moment, or is this just such an anomaly unto itself? Sears is such an anomaly. And the broader retail market has been pretty strong. It's not to say that we're going to see further bankruptcies this year, but the big retailers that were struggling are are gone for the most part. And so Sears has been limping along for more than a decade, and that's the question now. This bid has another day to survive. It was rejected. It's, you know, being revised, and now they'll reconsider it. But the, the core question remains, how do you make a retailer that has not turned around, this is that has been what, unsuccessful for years, this like, is what what's we, different now? Right. This is what we were talking about before we got going live on air, is that, you know, do we, do we kind of need a Sears? And so what does survival mean of Sears? I mean, is it a case that... He gets another chance to save the bid, and then in six months or a year, we're having the same conversation? Yes, that's quite likely, I think. There's no nothing about ESL's plan, uh, Eddie Lampert's plan, said anything about a strategic turnaround or, or efforts to really change the way the business is operating. So a lot of sources in the market expect that even if this rescue effort does go forward, we'll still be looking at a liquidation in three to six months. And we've seen that in other cases, right? Like Radio Shack, where they come back for a year or two, right. and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. And so what does this do going forward for these types of situations? Because as we've been talking about, this has been 
a slow bleed? Is it a cautionary tale for other investors who want to get in here? I mean, Lauren, you've been following this from a retail perspective for as long as I've known you. I mean, you've seen sort of retailers come in and out. Uh, Some, you know, survive or maybe not thrive, but at least live to fight another day. Uh, Where does it go from here? Well, look, I mean, the... The situation has changed so much since Eddie merged these two companies, which were already troubled. But yeah. you didn't have Amazon as a big presence. You didn't have a lot of these online-only retailers who have taken share. You didn't have Lowe's getting into big into businesses like appliances. Right. So for Sears in particular, um, the situation was never good and... Things have just continued to deteriorate for retail in general. Um, I think we have seen a slowdown because we've had so many bankruptcies and liquidations. I don't expect as many this year. We have some small, smaller, smaller mall-based ones, but I think a lot of the you know problematic ones are gone. Just got about forty-five seconds. I just want to jump in for a second because when I saw you guys and you guys were like, how come you're not doing the Sears story? And I'm like, well, we've been doing it. We did it, right. you know. And I think we've all been expecting just an ultimate demise. But I do wonder if the significant takeaway for our listeners, for investors, is the idea that people do look at now the amount of workers that are at risk. Has something changed in the dynamic? Like, what's the takeaway at this point? Because I think we all it's ult- becoming a bigger yeah. factor. Right. But so it I, won't. But it's not going to save a company either. But you know, I do this- wonder if it means investors in the future will think twice before maybe doing a deal thinking about if it doesn't work out it absolutely could we're already seeing lenders or banks being being concerned about that element and they're not quite sure always whether that means they should help out or not but they don't they won't want any part of it you guys are amazing i'm so glad i ran into you and i didn't actually think about having you on but our smart crazy smart producer paul brennan said we got to do this story so i'm so glad he brought you guys in lauren coleman lochner consumer and retail reporter at bloomberg news she's got no sleep in i don't know three or four days and eliza ronald hannon also hasn't got any sleep she's our high yield and distress credit reporter bloomberg news check them out at bloomberg.com for their reporting egg bacon spam and sausage without the spam i don't So who said it better? All right. Carol Masser Monty or Monty Python? Python? Of course, I don't Monty know. Python. I think Carol Masser yeah. may have the edge. Uh, spam stocks. It's a novel concept. David Mestrangelo is managing director at KeyBank Capital Markets, joining us on the phone from here in New York City. David, great to have you with Carol and myself. Thank you very much. So tell us, Spam, Salesforce, PayPal, Amazon, Adobe, Microsoft, heard of them. Why do you put them together like this? So it's not an obvious combination, but I sit in a technology equity capital market seat, and a lot of questions that I get from either potential tech issuers or from people from the buy side is where you think there could be leadership in technology on a going forward basis. Certainly, you know, FANG with two A's has been widely discussed and has been a great trade uh, for a number of years. I still think it's astounding if you look at 2017, on average, those FANG's names returned about 45%. That is on mega market caps and massive liquidity. That is kind of rarefied territory. But if you look at 2018, the return was much more muted at only, you know, positive 7%, really driven by leadership out of Amazon and Netflix. And if you look at kind of, you know, were those names traded off their close, they're certainly well off the mid or late summer highs. So the question is, if you look at the FANG names, it's probably fair to assume that in 19 they are still going to suffer, you know, broadly speaking, from regulatory issues, headline risk, and or unit growth. 
So accounts are looking where could potentially be another area to park stock to stay invested in equities and still exposed to growth. So we looked at screening some names. Uh, market cap, I think, is very important. If you look at kind of the FANG names, those are the Uber market caps. But the, the names in SPAM or the, this type of area are north of 100 billion dollars of market cap. Obviously, Microsoft are much larger than that. There are significant trading volumes, so you're able to put positions in or take them out with relatively uh, with relative ease. If you look at kind of just favorability from a sell side's coverage commentary, most of them has you know uh, pretty healthy return requirements, certainly well beyond what most uh, market strategists are expecting for uh, this year's stock returns. They cover some topical themes, whether it's enterprise innovation, cloud, automation or AI, or other you know positive secular themes and broader technology. These could be another area that you know have been you know overlooked in terms of a new wave of, in terms of where to get a return, but matching that with liquidity in 2019. What I will say is, I'm sure we could bring in a bunch of folks who would love to debate you on this because I would hate to kind of bet against some of the Fang stocks because I think you know if you look at a bunch of their charts, I was just pulling up a bunch on the Bloomberg PayPal. Uh, which is one you're talking about, Microsoft um, versus something like Amazon or some other names. I mean, they all have a very similar chart. They've all had dramatic run-ups if you go back a couple of years. Is your point really that from this point forward that you think these spam stocks are going to outperform FANG or they're both going to be interesting groups to watch, but you think, you know, since we spend so much time talking about FANG, don't forget about these other ones. I think they will. I think both are interesting stock uh, groups to watch. I think if you look at the crowdedness of the Fang trade, here are names that certainly were not as robustly followed in the press. Certainly, good names, liquidity providers uh, to get in and out of positions. Certainly, larger market caps and companies that still, if you're interested in being exposed to growth, mm-hmm. right? By and large, these companies are offering kind of mid to higher teens revenue growth profiles. So certainly, growth at scale with liquidity for investors. Well, and it is an interesting group of names, too. I mean, PayPal, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, the subject of a long profile uh, in this week's Bloomberg Business Week. It's on the terminal and on Bloomberg.com today. I believe we're going to talk to uh, the writers later on this week and certainly for our weekend show. But it's a fascinating story about a company that was on its own created kind of by accident by some of the best names that we now know uh, in Silicon Valley, Peter Thiel among them. It was in eBay, then it was out, but it really uh, is underneath so much of what we do in terms of payments on the internet. Yeah, that's actually a good point, right, David? Yes. Okay, that was easy. (laughs) In terms of if you look at other names that that you could lump in, there's certainly the Visa and MasterCards of the world that, that follow some of these major characteristics as well. Yeah. And Microsoft obviously has come on so strong. Yeah. I feel like that's a conversation we've been having uh, repeatedly over the, the past few months. I just checked. I, I thought I had heard this earlier on Bloomberg Radio that you know Microsoft now uh, has eclipsed, at least for the moment, Apple uh, in terms of market cap, still uh, still trailing Amazon, you know, which obviously is in the mix as well. But Microsoft, what a reinvention in a lot of ways, David. 
Right, and that is now approaching close to an $800 billion market cap. Uh, to your point, Jason, if you look at kind of that has really kind of come up in the press and, and in stories over the past, to your point, several months or the, the last quarter or quarter and a half, particularly as you look at the, the cloud exposure that the company has. Yeah, and it's that's been a big thing. I'm looking at the price, uh, the PE right now on Microsoft. It's definitely run up, and it's up about 26. But uh, looking at growth in terms of earnings growth year over year, we're looking at maybe what 13 percent for 2019. Uh, forgive me, that's revenue growth, and we're looking at about 21 percent in terms of earnings growth. Um, fascinating. Adobe. Tell me a little bit about the story there. Uh, again, Adobe was another kind of looking at uh, was added to the to that group more from a software enterprise exposure, visibility through kind of a more of a SaaS-oriented model, mm-hmm. but provided you significant revenue, sale, and growth with profitability. You know, when you talk about this software services area, I feel like we have so many guests who come on and who are smaller players, and then you have the bigger players gobble them up and stuff. How do you make sense of it? Because I do feel like there's so many names involved in this world. There are a lot of names. It certainly was. If you look at the IPO arena in 2018, about 60% of the tech companies that went public were from the broader software space and more specifically from the SaaS software arena. Those companies were going public anywhere between, let's call it a five and six times forward revenue multiple. I think as you, and those are great opportunities, but again, the scale, the liquidity and market cap of those companies certainly pale with some of the investable market cap of these, you know, either the Fang or a next-tier spam-type name. And I'm just going to say one other name that's on that list, Salesforce. And I just did a quick check, just looking at some of the uh, yearly returns. I mean, this stock's up about 476% since the end of 2011. So we've seen quite a run, and we often talk about what uh, Mr. Benioff is doing. And, uh, you know, a lot of companies uh, certainly tapping into their services and their uh, their uh, software. So, David, what gets in the way of the spams? Is there something that cuts across this group? Because obviously with the fangs, it feels like what we saw over 2018 is they all had kind of related but pretty distinct problems. Is there a thread of worry that you see across these uh, so-called spams? I think there. it's a more ver- uh, varied group of names. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still have scale and liquidity. Uh, they generally have sound business fundamentals. So outside broader market volatility or valuation reset, it seems like there are less other kind of one-off or uh, theme exposure to these type of names, at least in my opinion. David Mestrangelo, Managing Director at KeyBank Capital Markets, talking to us about some spam tech stocks, Salesforce, PayPal, Amazon, Adobe, and Microsoft. I like it. Thanks spam, for joining spam, us. Spam, I'm just spam, saying. spam, 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 spam. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Scott Clemen is chief investment strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman. Roughly $5.6 trillion in assets under management. Joining us 
in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here. Welcome. Nice to be here. Hey, so interesting environment, and it feels like things have, I don't know, maybe because we're not selling off, it feels like things have calmed (laughs) down. But we've seen um, stocks move higher for three consecutive days, and we've had significant bounces in those major equity averages from that December 24th low. Uh, I don't know. Do you feel like we've hit bottom? I I think this is is a healthy reaction. And and, and by the way, the, the trading experience over the past three months is more normal normal than people uh, appreciate. If you look back over over decades and decades and decades, of 220 some odd trading days in the year, usually on average, you get 17 or so where the market moves by 2% or more on any given day. Last year, we had 20, roughly in line with the average. In 2017, zero trading days in which the market moved by 2%. So in reality, we've just returned to a more normal type of environment. But I do think now the market's turned more towards the underlying fundamentals. Economically are good. Corporate earnings are good. I think we found a, a bottom, and I think we found it at a better valuation The 3% level. moves, which we've also seen, that's, that gets a little bit That's more. a little bit more unusual. That's yeah. more, right? Right. That's right. That's right. But, I, but I, the other analogy is that I use- Is it indicative of anything? The analogy I use with my clients at Brown Brothers is this. If we were to build a pile of sand in the studio here, one grain at a time, we'd eventually wind Our up- Our managers with a very, would get really They probably would. And it would we're take not forever. even allowed to have coffee <laughs> yeah. here, Scott. I'm just telling you. Please, like, all of a sudden come in Hence and- the analogy. Yeah. <laughs> You'd wind up with a rather predictable shape. But at some point, one additional grain of sand would cause that pile to shift. And as tempting as it would be to blame that last grain of sand, it's indistinguishable from all the rest of them. It's reality, the critical state of the market itself or the pile itself that causes it to shift. When you go for so long without any volatility, as we did in 2017, the market gets into a critical state in which it's prone to overreact to news or developments. Mm. I think that's what we've seen but over the past But it's also a different months. environment in terms of Fed policy. I mean, we have shifted, though, in terms of policy. Let's be fair. But there's always a reason in retrospect. I mean, when did we shift in Fed policy? It wasn't in September of 2018. Right. Right? I mean, Fed policy has been shifting for a while. When did trade disputes arise? When did Brexit happen? I mean, there's, those are the grains of sand that keep falling on the pile, but at some point, the critical state of the pile causes the shift. Now, the good news is once the pile shifts, it's in much better shape. It's much more robust. We began 2018 at 23 times trailing earnings on the S&P. We ended 2018 at about 16 times trailing earnings on the S&P, a much more historically normal level. All right. So let's talk about corporate earnings because we're days away and, you know, prompted in part by Carol Masser, who I have to say was beating this drum before most people. We are this is going to be really the most important thing that we do over the next couple of weeks. We've heard from the Fed. We'll hear from them again, obviously, right. uh, in, in not too distant future. We're hearing uh, about trade. But under all of this is how are CEOs feeling uh, about their business? What are they hearing from their customers, both on the corporate and the consumer side? Give us a sense of what we may hear from what you from what you. Analyze. I think 2019 is going to be a year of moderation, in, in no small part because the real benefits, the tailwinds of tax reform will, will wane. They're not going away, but just they're already baked into the year-over-year numbers. So in 2018, we had 20, 25% year-over-year earnings growth for the S&P 500. In 2019, it's going to be more like 5 or 7 or 9 or 10, much more pedestrian, but much more organic and much more driven by the top line. I'm expecting to see real live, honest-to-God, top line revenue gains based on unit volume growth and pricing power. That's a very healthy way in which it's, earnings grow you know, as well. It's interesting. You're the second person who, you know, you're not the second person. Many people come in and say, you know, the tax 
you know, impact, benefit, the sugar rush from it starts to wane. At some point, do we as smart individuals take a look and say, all right, let's factor out the tax benefit. What were really the earnings growth during that period minus that tax benefit? What did the markets do? What did the economy do? And then let's compare that to where we are today. That's precisely why I use trailing operating earnings instead of reported earnings in order to take that somewhat into account when I do the valuations, my, my mm. top-level valuations of the market. So I try to strip that out even of the historical numbers as well, which is more of an art than it is a science. Right. My, my numbers going back in the modern economic area, the last 75 years, on average, the market trades at about 15 times earnings. We're now at about 16 times earnings. So I'm not making the argument that the market is cheap. It's just not nearly as stretched as it was a year ago. No, it's really, I mean, it's certainly been, you know, brought in well, from, where, from those hefty valuations of, what, 20 or above. And, and, and think about the environment it. we're in. Blank sheet of paper, someone said to you, you've got an economic environment in which growth is also going to moderate, but be, let's say, 2.5%. Interest rates may or may not rise, but they're not going to skyrocket higher. Inflation is creeping up, but not dramatically so. Corporate earnings are going to be 7 8 9% on an operating basis, and the market's at 16 times earnings. That's a pretty benign environment. I like so that. Feels I'll take Jason it. So and be Scott are both shrugging. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I do think that we're still in for a healthy dose of volatility because a lot of that, let's call it the headline risk, is not going away. But for the long-term, patient, disciplined, value-driven investor, volatility is not your enemy. Volatility is your friend. doesn't feel good. It's not comfortable. But it's your friend. You could take advantage of it. And there's volatility and there's volatility, right? I mean, in the sense that you know, we have been a, in a very relatively benign environment. I mean, even of late, it got up uh, above 30 a few times. People were freaking right. out. But, you know, now, you know, in the 20s and low right. 20s, certainly, and in the high teens. You're talking about the VIX. The VIX, the VIX yeah. yeah. So the VIX top 35 on Christmas Eve, which there's nothing magic about that number, but it's... it's well, it's also because stocks sold off Well, that's, that's exactly why. That's right? exactly why. Uh, it, it's That's happened maybe a dozen times over the past 10 years. Yeah. Uh, the market is usually higher three months, six months, 12 months down the road after a VIX spike Spike like that. that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, Scott, help me out here because I'm trying to think there was somebody, I can't remember whether it was BlackRock or Blackstone or somebody, forgive me, I might be getting my firm wrong, but anyway, about clients kind of reining in uh, and reducing their exposure in terms of equities. What are you telling your client base? If you're so optimistic, are you saying, hey guys, double down? Well, we've rebalanced upwards, certainly. When you get a market pullback like we had, which from September through Christmas Eve was about 20%, very close to 20%, we've certainly rebalanced. Where we have dialed up our clients' exposure over the past 6, 12, even 18 months is outside of the United States. Hmm. As attractive as U.S. equities are now after the sell-off, the damage done outside of the United States has even been more pronounced. So international equities and emerging equities in particular, we're not doubling down. We're not backing up any trucks or going whole hog. But for longer-term investors, the value proposition outside the United States is stronger than it is inside the United States even. And you expect that continues through 19? I do because there's still a lot of fears and, and disruption outside the United States as well. Brexit perhaps being yeah. being the most obvious of them, a slowdown in Chinese economic activity. I mean, that's a long list as well. And that fear is what drives the good valuations. Valuations don't occur for no reason. There's usually some sort of fear or oh, expectation of something negative. I was quick searching. Half of BlackRock's clients looking to cut their stocks exposure in 2019. We're not seeing that at Brown Brothers ah, All right. Interesting stuff. Scott Clemens, thank you so much. Pleasure. Anytime. Scott Clemens, he's Chief Investment Strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman, roughly $5.6 trillion in assets under management, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.